This is an ABC podcast. So, you've been indicted. Why and who would do such a thing? Only a degenerate psychopath that truly hates the USA. Or members of the public, American citizens who were selected to sit on the grand jury. Well, their feed is the Twitter equivalent of diarrhea. It's unreadable. What are you saying? Stop everything! It has never felt more right to say, what the hell happened? Stop everything. Let's figure it out. Hello, I am Beverly Wang and Benjamin Law. That opener, we are confusing ourselves. We're mixing our metaphors, mixing our characters. We are just blending into one hydra of an over-the-top American personality (laughs) who said over-the-top things online this week. Truly, they are beginning to blend. Because they're very similar people at the end of the day. On one hand, you've got former US President (laughs) Donald Trump. And on the other, you've got Twitter owner Elon Musk. And in some ways, they have been allies and nemeses at different stages of their history. But what they are united by, Beverly, I think, is that they are two of the most exhausting human beings in public life right now. You made it happen. You threaded that needle and you let us know how they are actually one in your mind. Not too hard. They're both massive egomaniacs, like me, really. It takes one to know one. Please, let's dig in. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has been indicted on 34 felony charges in the state of New York. He denies all of them. He's pleaded not guilty. But, Ben, can I be honest... I advocated for that opener purely because I wanted to hear your Donald Trump impression again. I thirsted for it. You might be the only listener who actually wanted that again. But I'm not going to yuck your yum. All kinks valid in the Stop Everything community. Trump is back in our feeds, living rent-free in our minds. It's a hostage situation. He won't actually leave. So 34 felony counts in New York. You know what, Benjamin Law? Going back to my days as a cub reporter in New Hampshire and New York, I got to tell you, I love covering court cases, and so I'm reading all the stories. It reminds me of when I used to cover court cases, and I think I've been in that courthouse because back in 2003, as a baby cub reporter, I was there on the day that Martha Stewart was arraigned and showed up in the court. I was in the press scrum. I saw I'm going to go back to through those courtroom. images and look for you in a Where's Wally type situation. Look for a little tiny young Beverly hiding there. Anyway, so when I think about going to court in New York, not only do I think about law and order, I think about my own experiences, but let's talk about these 34 felony counts. I think I have a handle on them. If you want to ask me a question, I will do my best. Otherwise, I will defer to the real journalists who are still doing this stuff. How does that sound for a deal? Okay, 34 felony counts, Beverly. Do we need to list them off or is it about (laughs) one specific case? It's actually all 34 of the same charge. Uh Uh-huh. Right. 34 of the same thing relating to allegations that he falsified business records to cover up hush money payments. And do you remember Stormy Daniels? I don't think we ever forgot about her, right? She's an American folk hero now, basically. That's her status. So a former porn star who's had alleged dalliances with Donald Trump and 
she's now in the spotlight again. I mean, her Twitter feed is actually very entertaining when she goads Trump. She calls him Tiny, and that's her nickname of choice for him, having had sexual relations with the man. Mm -hmm. But she's responding to a lot of trolls. You know, she's faced death threats because of her name being associated with this case. So this all goes back to the 2016 campaign. She was paid $130,000 in so-called hush money via Donald Trump's fixer Michael Cohen to basically be quiet about the fact that they had sex, right? So this all comes back to this alleged campaign to have like a catch and kill. That's what they call it in the tabloid industry, where you catch the controversial stories and you pay money and you kill them, right? So rather than have them out in the public, you're keeping them in because obviously you're running to be president of the United States and the worry is that these negative stories could harm your campaign. So this is Mm -hmm. kind of the motive that's being alleged in this indictment. And the actual criminal allegations are that Donald Trump falsified business records to cover up those hush money payments. And there's a ton of reporting on this. That's probably as far as we need to go. But what is so interesting to me is the circus. Donald Trump started posting on Truth Social. (laughs) His own personal social media platform. Yeah, it's like his home brand Twitter. I mean, Twitter sort of feels home brand Twitter (laughs) nowadays as well. That's another conversation that we might return to. His black and gold Twitter (laughs) versus the home brand actual Elon Musk Twitter. Does that work for you? that's clear. He started posting lots of typically Trumpian, out-of-hand things about the coming indictment. And he even posted a picture of himself holding a baseball bat next to a picture of the New York DA Alvin Bragg. And that was deemed to be inciting violence and was removed Mm -hmm. from his own social media. Wait, from his own? I think he took it down. I don't think the black and gold Twitter, you know, enforced it. People around him were like, "Uh, Mr. President, maybe you don't want to be doing that about the DA in Manhattan who's indicting you. Okay, just to recap, Trump was actually removed from Twitter altogether, Mm -hmm. the actual Twitter, because he was inciting violence in the lead up to the Capitol riot. Then he was reinstated by Elon Musk, but he hasn't come back. Mm -hmm. So he's posting on Truth Social and his post is removed from his own platform. That's what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, that that is what we're (laughs) saying. Okay, and then the indictment comes and then the big circus, which he is happy to oblige by releasing like scheduled press statements about when he's going to show up, what he's going to do. Like, this is not a man who is shying away from the indictment. This is a man who is charging headlong into the media scrum, right? And he goes to court and he pleads not guilty. And then he jumps back on the Trump private plane and he goes back to Florida to, you know, the beautiful Mar-a-Lago estate. And he holds a press conference. We'll just play a little small bit because I think that's all we can handle. This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election. And it should be dropped immediately. Immediately. Ben, that is literally the only part of that press conference that is fit to play. Yeah, it's too early for us right now to be handling this much nausea. Doesn't matter what time of day you are listening, it is too much. There's Hunter Biden briefcase references. There's a lot of stuff thrown out there that is like pure conspiracy theories. Like, no, no, keep it away. You're far more across this than I am. So I have a few questions. So one, does this mean that Trump, who's running for president again in 2024, he could be simultaneously running for president while facing criminal charges. Yes. Yes. Okay, secondly, 
where's Melania in all of this? She's usually there right by his side. No one has even deep faked Melania, as far as I can tell, next to Donald Trump. She is maybe wearing a jacket that says, I really don't care to you and minding her own business. <laughs> now, we talked about Stormy Daniels before as kind of being this folk hero, right? Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting profile in Vogue magazine. We'll drop a link in the show notes. And it went live almost at the same time that Donald Trump's indictment actually happened. So clearly this is a strategic move to have Stormy Daniels have her story out in front and tell her side of what happened. It's a really interesting read. She lives in Florida where Donald Trump also lives, but in a secret location because her life has been threatened by Donald Trump's supporters. She talked about this sexual encounter with Donald Trump. She says she can't actually remember the exact moment of consenting to have sex with Donald Trump. She says, quote, there's 90 seconds that don't exist. Now, she's not saying that it was a sexual assault. She's just saying she can't remember what happened from one moment to the next. And I think the implication is that Stormy Daniels, I think she used to resist the Me Too readings of her story. But mm-hmm. it seems like there's been a shift there where she is reassessing what happened between them. And I recommend that you go and read it because I think it's really easy to think of Stormy Daniels as a cartoon character of a person, her name, what she does for a living as a porn star. None of this, I think, helps her image as a woman speaking out about her experience. It's very easy to knock her down. But I think it is really worth considering Stormy Daniels' story in its own right and not simply like she's the footnote to this whole Donald Trump saga. Yeah, that's a really good point. I do want to read that, but I'm also approaching it with trepidation as well, Beverly, because you kind of thought at the end of the presidency that the Donald Trump years were behind America and therefore the world, but it feels like maybe they're only just restarting again. Yeah, I got to say, it felt really weird hearing him talk again at the press conference. I forgot. It's like, oh, this is what filled our bandwidth for so many years. Mm. Beverly, you and I aren't going to join Truth Social because let's face it, our social media preferences are for things like Twitter. But I say that with a bit of hesitation in my voice because I don't know about our relationship with Twitter anymore. Earlier this week, I went on to the bird site that we mm-hmm. refer to it as. And there was a different picture in the like top corner of the screen. And it was a picture of a dog. And I recognized that dog. I was like, that's the Shiba Inu from Dogecoin or Doggy Coin, whatever way you want to say it. However you want to pronounce it. We're all talking about the same thing. And you know what I did? I went and I kept clicking on it. I was like, what's this? And I was clicking on it and clicking on it, thinking for some reason in my adult confused state that it would set off like a Google Doodle type animation. Yeah, you thought it was, like, purposeful, that there was something behind the dog. Yes, I thought it had a purpose. Click on the dog. I thought there was a function. I had a similar reaction, but if you are also still using the bird site and wondering why it's become a dog site... It's become the dog site. It turns out that this is just (laughs) a private joke. So this week, on the same day that logo changed 
from an avian logo to a canine logo. Twitter owner Elon Musk shared a recap of an old Twitter exchange, which came out in late March. He asked the world, is a new platform needed? And some random guy just said, just buy Twitter and change the bird logo to a doge. And then Elon Musk replied, that would sick. (laughs) I think he meant that would be sick. It feels like we've entered the Beavis and Butthead era of Twitter. We're kind of like private jokes between frat boys can actually be manifested as reality on a social media platform where things like the Arab Spring started, things like Me Too started, like important social movements started on this platform and it is now this plaything of a guy that's meant that the logo is now a dog because of a private joke and also has three verification levels. There are gold ticks, there are blue ticks, there are silver ticks. There'll probably be like dog ticks (laughs) next because they've lost control over what the value of that tick is. For Elon Musk, he believes that tick comes with a monetary value, but for a lot of Twitter users, that tick came with like the value of integrity, verification of trust, right? Yeah. And what it's meant is like the New York Times no longer has a tick. It's just a weird wasteland right now of information. When you said Arab Spring, I just got a chill. Twitter used to be among the many other things that it was, a really important way to convey information from places on the ground where you didn't necessarily have a direct insight. And the verification tick was part of the vetting. So if you could look at something reported by a verified journalist, for example, you'd have a lot more trust that what they were saying was factual and correct about a breaking news situation than someone without. But now, you know, this is like Twitter blue 2.0. They're trying to get a measly five bucks a month off of all of us who have that tick. And a lot of people who have a lot of money and a lot of clout, like, excuse me, LeBron James, are saying, I don't want to pay five dollars a month for that tick. It's not because LeBron James doesn't have enough money. It's because LeBron James, as a human being like us, on principle, doesn't see the point of having to pay for something that we already got for free, that we had to verify through actually submitting our ID and showing who we were. And it undermines the entire system of verification for $5 a month. You've got now grey ticks for government-related accounts. I do think that's a good choice of colour. Yeah, 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 that's right. It's just like very mono. A golden tick for corporations and companies. And now, you know when people were buying blue ticks, a lot of people were shaming them because you could click the the tick and see whether it was a legacy blue tick or whether you had paid for it. To counter the shaming of people who have paid for their ticks, now if you click on any blue tick, it says it could be because they paid for it or it could be because it's a legacy tick. We don't know. So all of those ticks are now the same thing. It is a hot mess. And I have to say, as a result, I am on a bit of a Twitter sabbatical. This platform that dominated my life for a decade and a half, I'm like, no, I'm not so sure about it anymore. Yeah, I rarely use it. I did just coincidentally see the little doji up there and get confused. You know, we talked about the Twitter death watch for a while, and then we blessedly put that segment to bed. Elon Musk keeps doing things that make us keep resurrecting it, but maybe we should just call the time of death now, because this is not looking good. The people who are verified and who are leaving, that is going to undermine the usefulness, the relevancy of Twitter in the long term. For me, it's been a long decline, 
but can we call it dead? I think for me, Beverly, the line in the sand is when over the last few months you see the New York Times not having a blue tick of verification. Ashes to ashes. And for a moment, the Taliban having one. Okay, Beverly Wang, category is rom-com set in London. Go. Okay, uh, Notting Hill. Bing. Thank you. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Bing. Bridget Jones' Diary. That's very, very good. But for extra points, what about British rom-coms that don't star Hugh Grant? Oh. Mm, does Pride and Prejudice count? Was he... he had? Um, yeah, will you take is it? Is it a rom-com? I mean, it's a rom. There are yeah, there marriages. are some laughs in Pride yeah. and Prejudice. Yeah, there's yeah. rom and there's com. Okay. <laughs> it's more rom, but sure, the okay. com's there. <laughs> Here's the most difficult round. Name me a rom-com set in London that doesn't star white people who are middle class to rich. How you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. Cool. It's Tom, right? I'm Yaz. That's me. Gonna meet my ex for the first time since the breakup. And you're still calling it the breakup? I thought we were fine. We were better than fun. We moved in together. We had Hamilton tickets. It's a serious commitment. Right? So, what happened? She cheated on me with my best friend. You cheated on Tom? With him? Oh, that hurts a little bit. I mean, I get it. The arms are nice, but... Why does she even talk about it? Are you just going to sit there and say that to me? Well, she said my arms are nice. Well, we did it, Joe. Look at that. That is Rye Lane. Rye Lane is a kinetic, colour-saturated joyride through London, South London to be specific, that stars two Gen Z romantic leads, Dom and Yaz, played by David Johnson and Vivian Opara, and they have a meet-cute sort of, in the toilet of an art gallery. What romance doesn't blossom in the toilets first? You That's tell how me. our romance blossoms, Beverly. <laughs> Just in the ABC Dunnies. Rylane had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year and has recently landed on Disney+. Plus. Rain Allen Miller is Rylane's director. In fact, it's her feature directorial debut. We recently spoke to Rain, followed by stars David and Vivian, about the film. Rain Allen Miller, welcome to Stop Everything. Thank you. Rain, let's talk about the title first. Rye Lane is central to this film. Tell us about the real Rye Lane in London and why it's so special. Um, well, I mean, it's not just Rye Lane, actually. It's kind of the whole of South London. It's special to me. It's a really personal thing. When I was 12, I moved to London because I'm originally from Manchester. And one of the first things I did was walk around with my grandma through Brixton Market. And it was like this really amazing, almost kind of Goodfellas-esque, you know, through the back of the restaurant experience where she sort of took me through and went, this is where you get your jerk spice. This is where you get your plantain. You know, it was this really amazing cultural tour of South London, specifically then in Brixton, which is where 50% of the film is shot. So Rye Lane, I mean, it's the street that they first met. And it's in Peckham, which is a great place where I've also lived before. But the film is kind of a love letter to the whole of South London. Lots of films and rom-coms have been set in London. I'm thinking Sliding Doors, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary. But as I say, those films, I notice they're quite white, quite a particular class of London and quite a particular set of people. What did you want to do differently with Rye Lane? 
I think it's not so much looking at those films and wanting to do something different, but it's about it being a different experience. You know, I didn't go into it and go, I really don't want this to be like Notting Hill. I just went into it going, this film is actually about these people and this experience and this place. So it sort of happened naturally. You know, they're classic films and they're great, but they are very different because the people and the places are different. When I watch this film, one of the things that strikes me as quite magical about it is that it almost feels like a synthesis between theatre and cinema, the way that it's shot. Is that something that you wanted to bring explicitly to the craft? I don't think I ever looked at it as this. I mean, obviously, there's a scene where we specifically reference theatre, you know, where Yaz kind of talks about her breakup and we use a theatre stage to kind of show it because she's telling a story. And I really liked the idea of making a quite an obvious visual representation of that. But I don't think I've thought about theatre, mainly because I'm terrible at going. After <laughs> I made the film, quite a lot of people have messaged me kind of saying, hey, you should go to this play and see this actor. And it's a great place to find new people and also just be inspired as it's a brilliant art form. It was a great device being able to peek in to her own life like that. That was a really interesting moment of vulnerability as well, showing as it unravels where the truth is in that particular retelling. In terms of this story of 24 epic hours in South London and on this quest for this record, what was it that attracted you to wanting to make this your first feature film? I kind of initially got the script and when I really don't want to do a feature film that I haven't already written, I read the script and it was a really simple story and the dialogue was really funny. I laughed out loud and embarrassed myself on the train laughing. <laughs> so for me, it was like, okay, this has made me laugh. I really like the kind of simplicity of it, but it's also got a lot of room for me to really add something to it. It was originally set in Camden, which is in North London, and it's an amazing place. It's where I bought my first Sonic Youth t-shirt. You know, it's got an incredible sort of music history, but it didn't really feel like the right place for it. And so I was keen to set it in South London. And I also worked with the writers for two years, you know, developing the script more. And we worked really well together and it was great. So the ingredients were already there for it to be a great film, but it also felt like it needed a bit more. And I think I was able to add a lot more to it. There was a lot of buzz around the film when it made its appearance at Sundance. It struck a particular chord with audiences there, people who loved romances, but particularly Black audiences. And it makes me wonder, like, was there a sense of responsibility to the audience when it came for the search of the two leads? As soon as I met Vivian and David, and I met them separately, I really did think they were perfect for the roles. The casting director, Carmel Cochran, and I, we were so scared because we loved them so much. We were like, what do we do if we put them in the room together? And like, they just don't have any chemistry. Because of course, as a director, you can sort of build that. But it needs to be there initially. You know, I'm not the kind of person that wants to work with two actors that, you know, hate each other as soon as I say cut. Like, that's not the kind of set or environment I want to work in. So when we put them together, it was incredible. <laughs> it was like relief and joy because they had such great chemistry. What did you have them do in that audition? And what was the moment where you're like, oh, yeah, this is the one, that relief and joy? I actually can't remember which scene we got them to read, but it was honestly in the first few words that you can kind of feel it. I definitely go on instinct and I really think 
you know, the minute somebody walks into a room, you know whether you're going to connect or not, you know, and that and that feeling is something you can't quite put your finger on. But I really have faith in my own senses on that, you know, so it was a really incredible moment. And the reason I think I can't remember which part of the script it was is because it kind of didn't matter at that point, you know, I'm just like, engaged by these two people connecting right now. Vivian and David are both Londoners. Were they familiar with the area where you set the film and did that help at all? I think they were both familiar. As much as I love South London and I'm almost like slightly patriotic about it, I think that London is such an amazing place and I think that there are similarities. And so Viv and David definitely understood what I was trying to achieve And they felt safe and normal in those spaces. You know, they knew it. There's something about walking around Peckham and there being like a Jamaican food shop. And then there's like a supermarket. And then there's like a flat white coffee shop that sells sourdough, you know. And then there's a guy that's just like trying to get you to get your hair done at his barber. You know, it's a place where those things happen. And it wasn't a surprise for Vivian and David, you know. They weren't fishes out of water in South London. But no, they're not originally from there. But it kind of made it even more fun because when we did our first rehearsal, I was like, oh, I hate being in this room. Let's just go for a walk. And we were rehearsing in Peckham and we just walked around. And that was amazing, you know, because I almost managed to choose a few locations based on that walk because I wanted them to just go where they kind of felt they should go. So in the early stages of the film, when they first kind of walk around, that walk is the walk that they did in our first rehearsal. Amazing. Something I want to know about Rain also is a very special cameo from someone named Colin Firth. How did that Uh, come about? Spoiler alert! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's fun, right? You know, whatever happened, people were going to reference the British rom-coms that he's been in, right? I almost wanted to just go, well, yeah, and almost like show that this, this film is the complete opposite of that and embrace it and be cheeky about it and just nod to it. And so I wrote him a letter and wow, he actually responded and turned up and grew his beard out and everything for the role. It was great. <laughs> Rain, this is your first feature film directorial debut and Ryland had its world premiere in January at Sundance. Take us to that premiere screening. How is the audience responding to Ryland? <sighs> I think just getting to Sundance and being in the mountains was quite an incredible experience. You know, as a filmmaker, you go, the dream would be to have your first featured premiere at Sundance. You know, it's such a great festival. So that was really surreal. It's sad because I think I'll look back when I'm older and go, I wish I could have just lived in the moment and really enjoyed it. And I think I spent a lot of time just being really nervous. You know, you have to present the film, you have to talk to people, you have to do interviews and all of those things are quite nerve wracking. And you're sort of not necessarily prepared for it. You know, you just make it and then think, okay, maybe it'll just go out. So my nervousness was pretty real. But when I sat down and heard the laughter, I was so happy and relieved. I think also because, you know, as much as this film is British and and it's so proud to be British, it's also like, you know, I want it to translate and I want people around the world to see it and to sort of enjoy it in the same way that they enjoy films like Notting Hill. And so, It was really a joy to sort of hear people laugh and laugh at the bits that I really felt were really quite specific. So that was amazing. Well, Rain Ellen Miller, we hope you enjoy the ride because it's such a unique experience to have your film Mm. directorial debut like this. I wonder, what do you think happens to Dom and Yaz after that film ends? How do you imagine their future? 
I think they stay together for three months and then break up. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, I do. I think this isn't like a sort of fairy tale. And I think that they get on really well. And I actually think they stay together. They have a great night out. But I also think that maybe they just think, ah, oh, this isn't working out. And then maybe a year later become best mates. I kind of love the idea of that. This film, I tried to keep it grounded in reality and make it relatable. And, and reality is, is that, you know, we meet people, we fall for them, and then we don't. Um, and I think there's something quite beautiful in that. Well, for ostensibly a heterosexual rom-com, I feel like you're tapping into queer culture right there by saying all of that. Really? I think Great. that can be enough. Great. Yeah, somebody tweeted, um, Rye Lane just restored my faith in heterosexuality, and it made me so happy. So, yes. <laughs> I am very pleased that you feel that way. <laughs> well, on that note, congrats on Rylane and thank you for talking to us on Stop Everything. Oh, thank you. David and Vivian, we've just been talking to your director who said she was really nervous at first putting you two together to audition because she loved you individually, but was not sure how you would click together. But she just <laughs> literally said to us minutes ago, that when she saw your chemistry together, she felt relief and joy that she'd found her Dom and Yaz. Um, Vivian, I wonder, when did you have that feeling that you had clicked? I was paired with someone else for my first chemistry read of the day. You know, I got to know that guy. He was really great, loved the work he'd done with Dom. Then I just walked into the room and it just made sense. Like, David is such an incredible actor. I knew that already. Like, the character he created was super compatible with the character that I created for Yaz. And then we were improvising this Tinder, like, hinge setup. Like, I had to help him set up hinge on his phone. And I was being chaotic because Yaz is chaotic. Like, I was just saying the most random stuff and he was bullying all of it. And we were having so much fun. And I was just like, I just enjoyed that so much and I was like, I'd love to work with this guy and maybe that's what the chemistry, yeah. what the root of the, the little seed. Like Vivian said, Vivian was with someone else, I was with someone else and the second we got together, we were like, oh no, like this is where it's at. You know, no disrespect to the other people we read with, they were great, yes. but it was just easy, you know, um, the kind of acting that you don't have to do much because you're getting so much from someone else and that's what Viv gave me, so it was great. Vivian and David, you co-star as love interests on The Rebound who encounter each other in a day that will change your lives forever. What appealed to you about the story when you first read it, Vivian? I read Yaz. I read the script and I found it hilarious. And then I read it again to really get a sense of Yaz. And I was like, she's bonkers and ballistic and kind of scary. Her choices are questionable. And I've just wanted to understand the motivation. She felt kind of far from me. I recognized her whimsicality and her curiosity for the world around her, but I didn't recognize or relate to the way it manifested. But I wanted to understand her motivations for that impulsivity. You know, I'd seen Rain's work and Rain is a masterful world builder beyond a director. She's just an incredible mind. And I love world builders and I was desperate to work with someone like that. David, what were you curious about or what intrigued you about this character of Dom? I guess what I quite like about Dom is that, you know, he's kind of someone I know, like he loves football, he loves his missus, and which inevitably becomes his downfall, but he's also like really emotional. So, I mean, like, you know, the first time you meet him, he's crying in the, in the lose. So I quite liked the fact that as a young black man, you can be very emotional. I was like, oh, I haven't really seen that. I was like, that's something cool to give. And it works out for him, you know, he finds, ah, and... So, yeah, to do that in a romantic comedy setting that still felt like authentic and true, I was like, oh, that's a challenge. And I wanted a challenge. So, 
I guess the other main character in this film is Seth London. Yeah. You can see it in the name. And your characters, they do a lot of walking and talking and moving around the place. How important do you think the setting is to the particulars of this story of Dom and Yaz? Vivian, what do you think? I think it's essential because the film is about simplicity. It's just about everydayness of life, but the beauty in the everydayness. So I think it was essential to situate the film in a landscape that is so loud and gives you so much. So it's a love letter to the place, but also to life and just finding the color in like the mundanity. And for us, it was like so much to play with every day, like so much to bounce off of and respond to and to keep it fresh. Obviously it's set over one day. Yeah, it's live, like, you know, Peckham is live. There's just no rehearsal because, you know, you can rehearse, but then someone else is now in shot and the best things kind of happen that way, don't they? Where they're just like, Life. <laughs> David, I want to connect some dots for the listeners. I think you're probably best known to TV audiences for your role in industry, where you play a very different type of character, Eton, Oxford graduate, gay, conservative person who works in the cutthroat world of investment banking. Dom in Rye Lane is a very different character on so many levels. Who's the biggest stretch to play for you? And, you know, yeah, Dom is definitely less Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> you know, both of them have their own stretches in equal measure. Dom is from London, so I know London because I'm an East London boy. But in another sense, the way he feels is just a way that I don't feel. Do you know what I mean? So having to stretch that far was something. And then, you know, you have someone like Gus who is just like, yeah, I don't have anyone in my life like him. And I loved having to run towards that. I guess as a young actor, I'm just trying to like be able to like stretch myself and break barriers in a way, but just mostly for myself, if people enjoy it, that's awesome. <laughs> awesome. There are a lot of heightened, hyper-dramatic scenes in this film, and I'm curious to hear from each of you what your favorite moments or scenes were. Vivian, there's an amazing, you know, lunch scene that your character crashes, for example, that must have been quite fun to say some of the lines there. Yeah, the lunch scene is truly quite something. It was super fun to play because our co-stars Benjamin, Sarkov and Kareem, Peter, they just gave us so much. They were hilarious and every take was different and it's honestly a miracle that they were able to stitch a continuous sequence together because we couldn't stop laughing yeah. and a lot of it was improvised and we were honestly, there's a delirium that takes over when you're on a school trip. That's what happened in that room. Chaos. Chaos, yeah. So that was a lot of fun to just be the knight in shining armor that arrives on a noble steed to <laughs> rescue. That was fantastic. She does that well in my life. In my, in my actual life. <laughs> she saves me quite. That was a wonderful day, like an actual great day to shoot. I remember we did one shot and it's kind of like spinning around us in Brockwell Park. Mm. We were losing light, so we had like 20 minutes to get this shot. And I remember we did it, I think, once. And it's just so gorgeous. We're just at a sunset on the top of a hill. We're kind of just like, okay, should we carry on and see where the day goes? I enjoyed that. I really appreciate how much the film brings the phrase low-res dick into our lexicon. So that was a gift from both of you and Rye Lane. Vivian, I want to focus on Yaz as well, because when you talk about her character, she can do some unhinged things, but she's absolutely lovable. And I want to talk about her quest to recover her Tribe Called Quest album. What is motivating that? Is it vengeance? Is it justice? Is it hurt pride? Or does she just really want to get that record back? 
But yeah, she can indeed do many crazy things. And you kind of get a glimpse into her relationship with her ex in the following scene when they're inside the house. But I think that was clearly a relationship where she might have lost a lot of power. She just wants to empower herself again. And she's super one-track-minded. She has an idea she's going to execute it. There's no consequence. There's no risk assessment. It's just, but I want my thing, so I'm going to go and get it. Almost like a child. She's very infantile in her decision-making, which is exhausting to like inhabit that space. Um, because in my head, I'm just like, what are you doing? Stop, you're going to get in trouble. But um, yeah, I think it was just like reclaiming power. It wasn't about the record. Obviously, it's a sick record. But I think it was also just about like, I hate this man. I think it was that simple. Like, why should he have this cool thing when he doesn't appreciate it? But if that was me, I would have been like, it's not that serious. Then there wouldn't be much of a movie with there. Yeah, the passion is incredible. Is She just can't be stopped. No. <laughs> and David, what do you think that energy is from Yaz's character that reaches Dom in his rather, can I just say, pathetic state? <laughs> yeah, you can. That's kind of pathetic. accurate, yeah. I think sometimes, and I need it sometimes, you need some people to kind of go, right, come on. We're going to do something, get up, let's keep moving. And she does that in such a endearing but intense way. I think Dom, he needs that. And the second that he kind of gets out of his pathetic state, he's actually a bit more emboldened, isn't he? And, you know, he has a bit more of like, okay, well, you know, you're great. And he says it directly to her and doesn't skirt around the board. So, yeah, I mean, Yasmin is just infectious in that manner. Um, I think it really helps him. One of the satisfying things about rom-coms is often getting that she said, he said perspective. And we want to do a test with you all right now, because just before when we were talking to your director, Rain, we asked her what she thought happens to Dom and Yaz after the movie finishes. How do each of you imagine their story continues after the closing credits? Vivian? You know, we live in a multiverse, so everything's possible. But I think... Knowing Yaz and Dom and the connection that we see, they fill in each other's gaps for sure. But is there longevity? I don't know. I feel like the film doesn't try to show a perfect relationship. And so therefore, in line with the way the story's presented, I don't think they would go on to have a perfect relationship. They'd probably have a great night, go separate ways. Yaz will probably get the ick the next day and disappear into thin air. Or... They'd be together forever, but I feel like it wouldn't go perfectly. I could see them co-parenting. That's a twist. That's a plot twist, right? I'm a helpless romantic, so I'm going to be like, no, they go the whole nine. They have kids. Dom is a great young dad. And, and we have to have a year I'm a little Thank you. Yes. Thank you. That's really nice. Do you want to know what Rain said? What did she what say? Did she, say? she said you last three months and then it's over. Three. That's just so direct. <laughs> She's splitting the difference there. She's going to stop going. But she did say that Dom and Yaz would end up as friends a year later. Oh, dang, yeah. <laughs> but I did see you in your eyes just then, Vivian, when David was giving his response. I could tell you were looking at him thinking, you sweet, deluded soul. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, this is the optimism that we need. Oh, yeah. Yaz is delirium. Yeah. You and Yaz shared about that. Uh, we've got, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us and congrats on the film, David and Vivian. All the best to you. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for watching. Rain Allen Miller is a director of Rye Lane. David Johnson and Vivian O'Para are the lead actors. And Rye Lane is streaming now on Disney+.
You know the Mario music is some of my favorite music ever. Oh, it's so perfect. Not sure if you know who I am, but I'm about to rule the world. Wow, uh, yay. But there's one problem. There's a human has a mustache just like you. Do you think I know every human being with a mustache wearing an identical outfit with a hat with the letter of his first name on it? <laughs> because I don't. Bowser is coming. Together, we are going to stop that monster. How? Look at us. We're adorable. I hear cuteness. I hear potentially anthropomorphic mushrooms. I hear the sounds of Italian plumbers. No, it's not World Pride Parade all <laughs> over again. Are these the cute, adorable voices and aesthetics of the Super Mario Brothers universe, Beverly? I recently watched the Super Mario Brothers movie. It's in theaters now. Let me issue a Mario-themed spoiler alert. It's a spoiler alert. Can I say, Benjamin Law? I unequivocally loved this movie. Oh my god, that fills me with so much relief because if you remember the first Super Mario Brothers film adaptation starring Bob Hoskins, like that is a famous Hollywood flop. And not all video game adaptations work out well. I mean, did you go into this expecting it to be good? I didn't know what to think. This is special to me because I grew up saturated with Super Mario Brothers and Nintendo. What about you? What's your relationship to the franchise? Same. I grew up playing Donkey Kong on an obscure game platform that only I feel like my family had on Coleco. What is Coleco? Every other family had Atari. We had a Coleco. So it's like third generation Donkey Kong Mario Brothers in my family. I grew up playing that with my parents. And then I grew up with the original Game Boy, staying up until about three o'clock in the morning under the covers trying to conquer Super Mario Land. And now I play Mario Kart with my family. And I think that's a pretty common story. So it feels like if you're going into a film adaptation, you better get this right. But what does right even look like? It's usually this guy, Mario, rescuing a princess who's been captured by a monster. Arguably, the very premise is retrograde. What's the premise of the film? We still have Bowser. And, you know... (laughs) We did a lot of reading about Bowser during many family lockdown walks. The politics of Bowser, you went deep. And it was during one of those walks that I found a website called bowsershrine.com that shares a history of Bowser. Is this a Bowser apologist website? What is this? No, no, no. It's just a Bowser factual website. Sometimes things are just straightforward. Okay, I'm just saying this is a man who has, this is a reptile rather, who has repeatedly violated the rights of women. We are talking about the same thing. My whole impression of Bowser's history was like, he is kind of like the Harvey Weinstein of the video game universe. Bowser has a Me Too history. (sighs) Actually, my main reservation going into the movie is, how are they going to tell this story of Bowser, who's a total creep, and make it okay for 2023. What's Princess Peach going to be like? And that is what makes this movie work. Because Princess Peach, who is voiced by Anya Taylor-Joy, she's a real badass, okay? Mm. And Bowser, played by Jack Black, 
the way they portray his pathetic obsession with Princess Peach is in tone with the politics of now. Because we're all meant to be like, why is Bowser such an incel? Like, what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But I think what's really joyful for people who have grown up with Mario is all of the references to yeah. all of the games. They're all in there. And so well, every like time... even Mario Kart n- makes an appearance. Oh, my God. I saw Rainbow Road come into view. I just gasped with wonder and joy and delight. I was like, <laughs> wow, Rainbow Road is real, everybody. Like, it was amazing. So that's what I think is really joyful about this film. Not just that we can feel good about where the characters are at now. I mean, except for Bowser, but that's obvious. He's the baddie, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's but supposed to be a baddie. He's supposed to be a baddie, but we we give everything, like, weight, and there's a reason for why people are the way they are. You're going to roll your eyes at this, but there was an amazing short story in The New Yorker. Beverly's like, oh, God, bring that back in. But it created this whole backstory of Mario, because I think Mario's coming up to his 40th birthday or whatever. I do remember that. That was really funny. Mario having a midlife crisis and Luigi being his gay kind of like worldly brother with like a lot of Teslas and Mario (laughs) feeling like he'd been on so many missions that his body was giving out and he wasn't sure if he could do another mission again. Like, do we feel any of that existential pain that existential ennui in this quest for Mario, this animated quest. Okay, so I'm going to give you a pass on your Benjamin Law, don't mention the New Yorker in Stop Everything Challenge, because that was actually a good one. So I will allow it. Thank you. It's a good story, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. Well played, my friend, well played. I read. (laughs) Back to the movie. What were you even asking me about in this long digression of yours? (laughs) Mario as a character, like what is his rich internal world? Because besides wanting to save... Princess Peach. So often, it's kind of like Mickey Mouse. It's like, Mickey Mouse, what is Mickey Mouse as a character? Mario, like, what have you discovered about the character of Mario that you didn't previously know, having played Mario as a character so much? I think that he's seeking validation. In the competitive world of plumbing? Yes, you took the words right out of my mouth. Wow. They are trying to get their business going. They're two brothers who still sleep in twin beds in the family home, and they're constantly undermined by their parents, (laughs) and then a plumbing emergency brings them into the Mushroom Kingdom and the Bowser Kingdom, and then the story goes from there. I really don't want to spoil it. I think it's very well-timed and smart to release it during the school holidays that are upon us, because a lot of parents are going to be able to take their kids to watch it. And I just got to say, every time there was a reference to one of the real games in this movie, I just felt happy. It's like this movie was made by people who play Mario and love Mario and were giving us all of the good things. That sounds like family-friendly, wholesome joy. I'm going to try to awkwardly segue to something that's so different that I've been watching that we can talk about next because um, it's not wholesome. It does depict young people, but it's definitely not a show for young people. Once upon a time, there was a place called the wilderness. It was beautiful, but it was also violent and misunderstood. And it weighed it and weighed it to befriend whoever arrived. The whole time, there was some darkness out there. Moment. 
We're going to talk about the second season of Yellow Jackets on Paramount okay. Plus. This is an American TV show. You and I both started watching the the first season, but I'm now racing ahead into this new season of a show about survival in the wilderness and the legacy of trauma. Okay, so this is the thing. I feel like Yellow Jackets is a show that demographically I should be all about because it's late Gen X, so like Gen X millennial cusp, female cast full of nostalgic favorites like Christina Ricci and Juliette Lewis. Even the soundtrack is kind of like all the music that I grew up with, but I just kind of dropped it. Oh, Beverly, why do you hate female-driven TV shows? Yeah, am I a misogynist? I don't know. Like, I'm sort of trying to understand why I was not drawn in because I like violent shows like The Last of Us. I like violent movies like John Wick. When it came to Yellow Jackets, I just kind of turned away from it after the first few episodes, and I was wondering... Why? I know it was okay. maybe it's kind of bad to out myself because there's no, so no, no. much hype around this show. I don't know. Like, you tell me why it's kept you going because I feel like there's so much TV in the world. I didn't feel compelled to keep sticking with Yellow Jackets. Let's just pull the thread here, right? Because we've talked about the age old kind of friction between you and me where I quite like stressful shows, Mm -hmm. whereas you want escape. At the same time, you are right. Like, you don't mind a bit of violence, and Yellow Jacket has that. I wonder whether it is the fact that Yellow Jackets, which takes place in one line of the story in the 1990s, and then also takes space in the present, where two casts play each other. There's, like, the teenage versions of these women and then the present-day versions of these women who are grappling with the past. I wonder if... What is more stressful about Yellow Jackets is the fact that as much as there is physical violence in this show, I think that this is a show much more about psychological violence and the violence that women can enact on each other. And that, if you've been caught up in psychological warfare between friends, actually feels far more distressing than just watching physical violence on screen. So are you saying that I have experienced psychological violence as a female and therefore I'm repelled by watching it on screen. I'm not giving you this therapy. I'm just saying I think some of the emotional tumultuousness that we've all experienced as teenagers, but especially can take place between women, is actually its own form of distress that's separate to physical violence depicted in cinema and television. I don't think I'm entertained by watching female pain. I'm not Mm. entertained by watching women get hurt Mm. God, now I feel outed as the misogynist. Am I drawn to female pain? Do I want to see women tear each other apart? I would flip it and maybe... We come to things for different reasons, right? Yeah. And look, I would argue in my defence, but also to the show's defence, that I don't think it's just about women tearing each other to shreds. I think that this is a show also about female strength and survival and what it takes. I don't think it's like doing it from like a male gaze. I just haven't gotten into it. Let's actually get to what happens in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What can I tell you? What do you want to know? Do we need a spoiler alert? Does cannibalism actually happen in Yellow Jackets or do they hint at it? 
Okay, so in the very first episode, in the very first season, it is hinted that cannibalism does take place because the whole premise of this show is that it's 1996, female high school football team, there's a plane ride accident, they get stranded in the woods, several people die, and they now must survive in the wilderness. And the whole question of season two for these young women, we know that they will survive because we see the adult versions of themselves play out in the present day timeline. But now winter is coming for these teenagers and it's like, how are they going to survive the winter wilderness physically and how are they going to mentally survive all of the horror that we've seen play out in season one? So is there cannibalism? It is implied. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. By the end of the first episode of this second season, you've got a lot of stuff happening. You've got... um, people talking to corpses of their now-deceased best friends. Okay. You've got people having um, sleep-biting episodes. Are they so digging into the corpses, Ben? They might be poking around <laughs> at the corpses. There's a lot of stuff happening. What I will say is the very final flash of the first episode back, you see an act of cannibalism, but not in the way that you expect it to be. It's not the kind of... Um, murdering people simply for flesh. Very long answer to a very (laughs) short question that still offers no satisfaction. Well, Benjamin Law, I wish you well. I wish you well as you keep (laughs) watching season two of Yellow Jackets. There's a lot of other TV to watch. I'm going to watch Alone Australia, which is a real story of survival. Oh, that's stressful in its own way. I prefer it. Again, I'm wishing you well on that journey of Yellow Jackets. And you can tell me about it, and I'll look at the memes from Yellow Jackets, and that'll do me. And that'll do us for the week. You can find us on the ABC Listen app. Ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Stop Everything that probably works on a smart speaker if you're listening in Canada on the CBC as well. Thank you to our producer, Sarah Mashman. This week's Stop Everything was produced on the lands of the Yagara and Turrbal people, the Kula Nations, and on the land of the Muanina people from country around Nipaluna. We'll see you next week. Bye. I'll see you on Rainbow Road, Beverly. Oh, yeah, I'll challenge you. Smash you there. Kick your ass. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.